Though I have not uh, personally met our third panelist before today, I have been aware of his pertinent and very constructive comments about alcoholism programs in industry, and especially the role of Alcoholics Anonymous in industrial programs. I'd like you to meet Bill George from Mission Viejo, California. Bill. get nervous when you do this, but uh, I turned it over. Took the third step again today. Jack, uh, I really like what you had to say, and after this here panel's over, I'd like to talk to you about that afternoon drink that you're having a problem with. Maybe we could help you out a little bit, too. You know? They give us 30 minutes to do your thing, tell your story like it was, and how you found the program and what's like today. I'm grateful and honored to be here. I can start off by saying my name is Bill George and I am powerless over alcohol. Or better words, I'm an alcoholic. I'm the thing I'm the thing they've been talking about. <laughs> You know, I, when I when I first came to AA, you talk about powerless over alcohol. You know, I that's the first step. I, I always I really get into the big book. On page 82, it says there very clearly to me. And by the way, what I say here is what I feel and what I understand from my gracious sponsors. I have a couple of them up here. I don't know where the hell the other one's at. He more he's hiding somewhere. But uh, it says there very clearly that. May is unthinking, who believes that sobriety is enough. Thank, thanks to God and this fellowship, and getting here early enough, by the way. I came young. As you can see, I'm still young. <laughs> there you go. Now we're on it. <laughs> what has happened? See, I I thought as though I had to do something better than sobriety. I used to come around. Everybody used to tell me, says, "Hey, I only promise you sobriety. That's all." I said, "Christ's sake, what's that?" You know. And uh, I I used to go home and read the book and try to find that in the book. Never said that. You know, I said, "If that's all you're looking for, you know." They kept on saying there's a whole bunch of promises on page 83. I said, I'm looking for it, and I can't find sobriety in there. All kinds of things are going to happen to me. If I listened to what you people had to say, I wasn't powerless over alcohol when I got here. I couldn't understand how anyone could be powerless over anything. But my life was surely unmanageable. If that makes any sense. You know, I had been to jails and uh, taken, picked up by the feds for breaking in uh, cars railroad cars and things like that and had a lot of trouble in school thrown out of this school and went to that school and then thrown out of that school and went to that school etc etc and then I started to drink <laughs> my god what a mess that ended up in <laughs> I really messed it up it was unmanageable before I started all this I'm trying to tell you but I didn't recognize it because see when I started to drink alcohol my life became manageable. 
<laughs> right. All my problems were solved. I didn't go to as many jails, you know, still went to jail once in a while. But uh, I knew my life was unmanageable because that night before or two days before, whatever that was all about, I was sitting on my floor sucking on a bottle of booze. What else do you do with a bottle of booze? Suck on it. Plus, I was sucking on a 38 revolver, cocked and loaded. Now, I call that unmanageability. <laughs> Jack, you were talking about constructive coercion. That was what it was. <laughs> Motivation. <laughs> My God, I can't even do that right. I couldn't even get that done. Someone asked me one time, did you enjoy drinking? I said, I had a hell of a good time. They said, what'd you quit for? I said, quit having a good time. <laughs> What else? Why? Why not? I quit having a good time and I start having pain because the booze stopped making my life manageable. Drinking to me became a way of life as AA has become a way of life today. I was able to perform much better as a union representative, which I am, by the way, I think as a father, as a husband, and all the other things I thought I could do better by drinking. I was able to cope with situations. I was able to live in my world of fantasy. I was able to live with all my hostilities and resentments and every damn thing else I had by taking a drink. I was a daily drinker. I very seldom ever got sick. I had a lot of fun with it for many years. Now, whenever I cross that imaginable line, if there is such a thing, I don't question it. I really don't care. I know what the hell's wrong with me. I'm a drunk. Can't drink. That's all. But my life was unmanageable. It took me a long time to find out that I was powerless over anything because I thought that I had power over anything that I got involved with. I looked at that second step when I came to it. By the way, they gave you 30 minutes to do this thing. And uh, I told him, I said, really, I have about an hour and a half of, you know, of constructive thoughts. <laughs> and then Juanita said to me very kindly, she says, Bill, it's not what you want to say, it's what you have to say or what you know. And we got down to five minutes. <laughs> but I came to, and I came to believe that power, greater than myself, could restore me to sanity. You know, I thought for a long time that said would. And for about a year and a half, I said, I'm getting shortchanged. <laughs> you know, I wasn't making it. I wasn't getting normal. Or I wasn't getting where the hell I wanted to be at. I couldn't make it, couldn't make it. Didn't have to take a drink. Never took a drink from the day I came in AA. But the sanity, it wasn't, wasn't the things that I did when I was drinking. It wasn't the things that I did in blackouts. It wasn't a, the nonsense of abusing my family mentally and physically. It wasn't a nonsense of waking up in some strange town with strange people, wondering how the hell I got there. It wasn't that insanity that I understand. The insanity was, this time it's going to be different. Yeah. Huh? You been there, huh? <laughs> huh? This time it's going to be different. If I take a drink this time, I won't belt the old lady. I swear. <laughs> I will abuse the children. I promise you. What do you mean I'll end up in Detroit? Not with this kind of a drink. It's going to be different. 
The insanity that I understand, that I was taught by you lovely people, was to go back and try it again and again and again, and with repeated chaos, deeper and more painful each time. The third step, you know, that turning it over, you know, making the decision. I had to find be willing. And when I came to when I came to fellowship, they, you know, I came I came as a pronounced agnostic. You know what that is? Uh, I mean, I'm here pronounced out agnostics when they got here. You know, those kind that said, "Well, I didn't have a God. That's why I acted like I did." You know. Well, I had broken all of God's Ten Commandments, literally. I turned my back on them. I, I went to a school in Minnesota, in high school. And when I was up there in Minnesota going to school, uh, I studied to be a priest. I was a way seminarian. That was be a good idea to do that while you're there. So especially since you've been you know put out of two or three schools for misbehavior. And you hadn't drank yet. <laughs> and, I, and I used to think about that, and I... And that God I understood, by the way, was very frightful. And, I, and then people in AA told me, said, you don't have to have a God right away, just turn over to the group. It was a group. The group could be your God. I don't understand that. I don't understand it today. And I kind of backed off for a few years of really getting, getting together or learning how to better yet. The kids always say, let's try to get it together. I don't like that. I, I think really AA has taught me how to live with it apart. You know? <laughs> There are moments, there are moments, you know, those little moments, like 37 seconds on a Friday evening at 5.15, I get it together. I don't know what the hell I'm doing at that time, but I get it together sometimes in those times. But I've learned how to live with it apart. And I had to find a God of choice. I found a God that loved me and that I loved, you know. Um, he has no religion. And then, by the way, to find my God, all you have to do is be kind. You know, it's amazing. Every time I've been kind to another human being, I've seen God. I've seen happiness. I've seen love. Just by being kind to another person. I never walked up to a person and said, Hi, how you doing? They said, Get away from me. You know, it never happened. When I walk up like, bah, 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 they tell me to get away. If I am my God, all you have to be is kind and look into another human being. He'll be there. I understood that. And I made that decision turn my will and my life over to that person. I also, you know, when I came to the fourth step, and it was, <laughs> did any of you ever try the 45th step? Huh? <laughs> I took part of that with Al over there, you know, he's your, he's your chairman uh, Sunday. I go down to the beach down there in Florida, I say, yeah, i got to talk to you about a few things and lay a few bits on them. You know, take a little inventory and tell them a little bit. Don't tell him too damn much, because he may not like me. See? And there was something about AA when I came here, I didn't know what it was, that I wanted to keep on coming back. I didn't know what it was. But I didn't want to mess it up by telling everybody all about me. Because they may throw me out. Right? <laughs> so I would take a little bit of inventory, and I would tell Joe, and then a little bit of inventory, and tell Mike, and a little bit of, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if she was cute, I'd tell her, you know. Where was that? And about three and a half years on the program, I didn't say on it because I didn't get into it until I got my fifth done. I was up in Minnesota, seen a very good friend of mine at the Hazelden Foundation. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, When are you going to take your fourth and fifth step and quit playing around? And I was so embarrassed. 
Here I was going around telling everybody how the works program, and he knew all about me. He met me, you know, he was my teacher at records, and he met me, and he knew what was going on inside me. I didn't know. And I had to say, okay, let's get it on. So with the help of the guy he gave me and the big book, I went home and I got it done, like it said to get done. And let me tell you, for me, it was a painful experience. It was painful. Because I had to put down there that I wasn't a super father, that I wasn't a great athlete, that I professed to be, that I wasn't a great lover, that I thought I was. I wasn't a great person. I wasn't the outgoing male figure that I thought I had been. I had to put down that I was an average person. My God, who in the hell wants to be average? You know, didn't want that. I used to love it when they came in. They said, well, you alcoholics, you know, are above average intelligence. <laughs> now, let me tell you about some of the ones I've met. You know. what the average intelligence is of the, of the average person, you know. Well, if we're talking about 56 IQ, okay. <laughs> we're talking about the 110, I'm not too sure. You know, but they, all of a sudden I put down the, you know, I, was, I wasn't very much of anything. Christ's sake, I wasn't much of anything. And I worked real hard to get there. Really, really, really worked hard to get there. And now I had to tell me, I had to tell me that I wasn't much of anything. And that hurt. That's painful. And three weeks later, thank God, I got back up there and I was able to get that done, the fifth step. I was able to relate to another person. And then and then alone that I found out that I wasn't alone anymore. That somebody knew all about me. Somebody knew all about me. And that person told me, yes, I was average. That I wasn't above average. And more important, I wasn't below average. I was just an average human being. It wasn't that nice. Being something for the first time in my life. Not being alone anymore. And the whole world of frustration, pain, and all that stuff that I was carrying inside of me, those first three and a half years or so, was taken away for the first time. And I would say it was the greatest gift that I ever received coming into AA. Because the first six months, I did not understand what happened to me. I was on that pink cloud. You ever get up to that pink cloud, float around? There's a nice area patting you on the back. First 30 days, they pat you on the back and say, boy, you're doing a nice job. I say, am I? You know? And three months later, they pat you on the back and say, you're doing a good job. I say, well, well thank you. So nine months later, they say, boy, you're doing a great job. I say, I know it. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't alone no more. I didn't have to get into that kind of a bag and play those kind of games. I wasn't alone. I was one of you. And we were then brothers and sisters in this fellowship. You know, when it came, I, I became entirely ready to get rid of my defects. Some people said, well, I'm not going to get rid of that one yet. That's okay. That's where you're at. But that wasn't where I'm at. I'm talking about me, Bill George. You see, what you may consider defects, I may not. And I don't want any more of those things that I had. Didn't need them. 
Christ's sake, I had enough problems, you know. Didn't need any more of that pain. I want to get rid of them all, so I was ready to have God remove these defects of character. And I said, how do you do that? And some guy like Al or somebody who'd been around for a long time, he said, well, why don't you take a step to the left and get out of the way? <laughs> you know, get it on, you know, get it on. Let it get, get on. So I did that. I was ready. Now, I'll tell you right now, he hasn't done a very good job there either. <laughs> but we're working on it. And then I humbly asked him to remove my shortcomings. Those shortcomings I was explained to very well by a fellow back in Youngstown, Ohio, by the way, where I'm originally from. As you see on the program, Pennsylvania, that's where my office is at. And my other office is in El Segundo, but I live in Mission Viejo, California. I belong. I belong here, you know. And this guy told me his shortcoming is with something that I'm not aware of yet. And once I become aware of it, it's going to be a defect, and I don't need any more of those. So I humbly asked him to do that. And to me, humbly, humility used to be teachability. I still think it is. It's okay. But I've searched back in that fifth step, in the 12 and 12, on page 59, and it says in there, humility is being what you are, being aware of what you are, who you are, and being willing to grow to become what you can be. My God, I want that. I want that bad. So I humbly asked him for that. The eighth step I always said was the easiest step there was. You didn't really have to do much. You know, you had made a list of all those persons you had harmed. I had a long list. But first, someone told me, you don't do that. All you have to do is write down your mother and your father and your, your wife and husband and your employer if you harm them. Well, I'm not going to tell my employer I harmed him. I got news for you, you know. Uh, but I, I sit back and I think about that and I said, but to step and say that and become willing to make amends to them all. I write them all down, everybody. Now that was pretty easy because I really didn't have to go make the amend, just become willing again. And I became willing. I got conned into that step. That's what the hell happened. And you ever get a long list of names in front of you after you got became willing and said you don't have to do nothing until you get to the ninth step? What are you doing with it? You have to get rid of that garbage fast, don't you? So you get it done. So ninth step, you know, ninth step as far as I'm concerned is the only step that I can see that you can cop out. All the other steps tell you, you know, what to do. And by the way, someone told me, he says, you know, in AA, you don't tell you what to do. They told me. When I came around, I was so squarely, you know, they didn't ask me what I wanted to do. They didn't say, we suggest that you do this. They said, you do that. And you get there, and you be there, and you be waiting here, and cetera, and cetera, and cetera, and that's exactly what the hell happened to me. I used to stand up, what do I do next? They said, drink the coffee, you got it in your hand, don't you? suggested anything to me. They told me what to do. And thank God for them. Thank God for them. I needed that. I needed that. They said that I had a tremendous job. That I had to change my attitude. So I was going to make it. And I think about that attitude. It reminds me of a story. It reminds me of the, the big football player who married this tiny little girl and they go on their honeymoon. And about the second day on the honeymoon, he looks at her, and they're laying in bed, and he says, Darling, will you do me a favor? She says, What's that, dear? He says, Would you run over there and get my trousers? 
She jumped out of bed and she ran over there and she got his trousers and she's coming back. He says, stop. She's put them on. There's a little tiny thing she gets in this pair of pants and she gets it up to her waist which goes around about four times and she's standing on her knees. She says, I can't wear your pants. He said, don't you forget that as long as we're married. I'll wear the pants in the family. <laughs> so he got back in bed. She got back in bed and they were laying there and he started pecking on her neck a little bit. She says, honey, she said, would you do me a favor? He said, what's that? She said, would you go get my panties for me? He said, sure. He ran across the room, got the panties, came back. She said, stop. He said, what, 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 She said, put them on. This guy, you know, he wore a size 14 shoe. <laughs> this girl, he weighed 108 pounds. He couldn't get his foot in. He's having a hell of a time. He finally said to her, he says, honey, he says, I can't get in your pants. And she says, you're not until you change your attitude. <laughs> told me not to tell stories like that. <laughs> Forget that one. <laughs> you know, then I came to the last three steps of my program where I, I feel as I am today as a 10th, 11th, and 12th step. To me, these steps are steps of maintenance of life, which I live in daily. 10th step is me with me. 11th, me with God. And the 12th, me with society. And you notice I have myself in all three of them because this, per this program is very personal to me. I have to continue to take a personal inventory, spot check, sometimes, daily, all the time. I have to continue to go back and take a long, written inventory in the 10th step and take it with my sponsor again on occasions, which I've done. And look at where I'm at. And we all look in the mirror and say, hey, guy, you're okay. And if you're not, if you are okay, why are you okay? Let's check that out. If you're not okay, let's check that out and do something about it. The 11th step, I have to continue through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with my God as I understand him. And every morning asking for the knowledge of his will for me and for me have the power to care that for him. I have to do that to make it, for me to make it. The 12th step, you know, after having that spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we carry that message to alcoholics. Let me tell you something. I'm giving you the best damn message I got right now. This is all I got. Maybe not, I'll tell you what, it's not as good as the one I prepared this morning. <laughs> I was sitting there looking into the television, blank, you know, and saying, all right, all you lovely people out there, I had it all together. It wasn't as good as the one I heard this morning, but it's the best damn thing I got right now. And I believe every time I'm in an AA meeting, that speaker who's given their talk is giving the best damn message they got too. And I respect that. I respect it. Think about it. It may not be as good as the one I can give tomorrow or two weeks from now that I give that opportunity again. But it's the best I have today. And the practice principles in all our affairs, it's something to me which is you know, living life, living life, walking down the same street sober, I did drunk, holding my head up high, smile on my face. If I am to say that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous to another human being, I better be smiling if I want to carry the message of this beautiful, gifted program.
I'm not walking around with a frown on my face saying I'm a member of AA. No way. That's not carrying it. As far as I am concerned, that's not the way I would carry it. If I, when I say I'm a member of AA, I want to smile. Again. You know, I came in AA, I didn't have too much smarts. I, I drank pretty hard. I drank daily. And I got kind of, I was kind of squarely. Billy sitting back over here. He still is squarely, by the way. <laughs> he was okay when I came. But he went back out and tried again. And, you know, I used to take the book home and I'd read it. It's a big book. And I'd go through it, you know, two days I'd read that whole book. And I couldn't comprehend one damn thing of it. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand anything I was reading. They give me pamphlets. Everybody kept on giving me things, you know, take home. They said, can you read? I said, yes. You know, take them on and read them. Yes. Because I told you I did everything they said. And I would go home and I'd read those pamphlets, but I couldn't understand them. I couldn't grasp. I couldn't grasp what the hell was in there, what it really meant. So finally they got a little disgusted after a few months, and they said, you know, you're not going to make the steps for right away. You know, and, you know, you're going to take some time. We'll tell you when you go back to them. Uh, how about the four absolutes? I said, yeah, I like that. I used to follow a guy around named uh, Matt back home. And Matt used to talk on the four absolutes because when he came in AA, that's what they had back in Ohio. And that's what kind of got him on his feet. I used to listen to their honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. I said, well, yeah, that's pretty simple. Why they got these here 12 complicated steps when they got this here stuff here, you know. I didn't want to rewrite the book. I was telling Juanita... When I came to AA, I didn't really want to rewrite the book, but it took me three weeks to go to New York, visit GSO, go see Bill Wilson, and to find out what kind of job I was going to have. <laughs> Let me tell you, it was his job I wanted, you know. <laughs> but I couldn't, I really couldn't comprehend, so they gave me these four absolutes, and I'd like to share them with you. Take a moment to share these with you. They told me that honesty was the first and supreme prerequisite to the whole program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, Clarence said that, honesty. The prerequisite to this program, to my life. The prerequisite to this program, to my life, my program. And they asked me a simple question, and they told me again by asking, are you honest with yourself so you can get honest with others? My God, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't sure what the truth was. And I had to get honest with me so I could start getting honest with others. They asked about the purity, and I had a guy named Joe back there. He used to tell me, you know what purity is? I said, no. You know, <laughs> you know I, I, I had some ideas, but I wasn't sure. He says... He says, you're a married man? I said, yes. He says, uh, he says, that means no girls. I said, well, I have two daughters. He says, no, no, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. You've got to clean up that whole mess, boy. You know? So for a year and a half, I used to stand in AA. When a good-looking girl would go by, I'd sneak a, a dishonest look at her, you know? And go home thinking I sinned. <laughs> You can tell how messed up I was when I got here. <laughs> I used to sneak looks. You know, you know. But I found out later on that purity is a purity of mind, soul. That, you know, I can lay my head down now. My son told me one time, my youngest guy said, hey, it takes a minute and 27 seconds. He timed me one time. From the time I put my head on a pillow, so I started to snore. 
I don't know why he did it, but he did it. And you know, I never used to sleep at night when I drank. I, I question. I'm not too sure, but like I said, I used to have a lot of blackouts. But I used to wait till the sun started to come up before I could close my eyes. That's how scared I was. And then I had some kind of funny feelings that maybe I was a vampire. Huh? You get that thing, you know? Walk around. All night long, you know? Just keep on going around the place. Hey, real weird thoughts. I said, well, you know, I used to joke about it. I joke, I said, I'm a vampire, I don't sleep at night, you know. But uh, I used to, I started worrying about it. What the hell was I doing at night time, you know? I was on earth sometimes. I was scared, frightened, fears, all that kind of stuff, you know. But now I like to lay down and rest my head. Except for the night before I came up here. <laughs> Didn't sleep well last night. That's that unselfishness, and I said, what's that all about? I said, Christ, you come here, you tell me it's a selfish program, it's all for me. You know, that's what I liked when I came to AA. I gave you a serenity prayer. God grant me, give me the serenity, courage, and the wisdom, all for me. Then someday I come up later on at the end of the meeting and start that damn art father. I blown the rest of you, too. You know, you understand, when I came here, I accepted the serenity prayer because I understood that. Today, I understand the Our Father, this is our program. They say it's unselfish, and I said, well, how can you tell me selfishness and it's unselfish? What's, what's this mean? What's this mean? They say, because to grow in this fellowship, you must be willing to give it away. I didn't know that. I used to go around and get all the goodies off of everybody there was and keep them in my pocket. Oh, I'd share, I'd share a meeting or lead a meeting when they asked me. In fact, if they didn't ask me, I asked them, you know. And I would, I'd be more than glad to make the coffee and make the, bring the donuts and all that there. And I said, well, that's the unselfishness of giving it away. But I found my growth started, like I said, with the fifth step I got in the program. And I found my growth started when I started to 12 step totally by taking a sick one and staying with him and trying to give it away by getting in the book to help him or in my case him to help him learn about this fellowship by reading myself I learned more by telling when I was asked my opinion giving it I learned that unselfishness and that was the one of the great, another great gift that I received in AA the last one was love now don't tell me I didn't know about love you know, I had a wife, four children, I think a couple girlfriends, I'm not sure, I think so, you know, whatever that was, and I knew all about that, I mean, I knew it, I used to read those books on love, those sex books, <laughs> that's how messed up I was, I knew nothing of it, and this guy again told me a very simple thing, he said, you see that guy over there, and I said, yeah, he said, you love him, I said, what do you think, I'm a fag? <laughs> And by the way, if there's any of you out there, you know, that's, that's your thing, okay. <laughs> hey, so how about yourself? You love yourself? I said, what do you think, I'm crazy and nuts or something? And he said, uh, no, man. You know what we're talking about when we say love. You see, when I said when I first came around, there was something you were giving away. Beside them damn donuts, them stale donuts and that they're terrible coffee. There was something beside that that kept on bringing me back, you know. There was some other attraction. I didn't know what it was. It was love. See? That beautiful thing that you gave away called love. And I learned from you people 
through God, through you people, the ability to love. And I found out that it was giving, it's a gift from God to me to give to you. The ability to love unconditionally, expecting nothing and accepting all. That means when I give my love, it's gone. It's a gift for me that I can give to you. I used to walk around and say I loved everybody. Don't. My grandmother does. I don't. Don't know everybody. I haven't, no. I haven't grown that much. Maybe someday I will. That's the ultimate. But somewhere along the line, the gift was given to me that I can now love. I have a few friends here that I know very personally I love. And that means... It's okay, and they could say, hey, I used to have terms, you know, I used to have all kinds of conditions on love. You know, if I loved you, you had to love me back. If you, didn't, if you didn't love me, I wouldn't love you. You know, I learned now that mine is a giveaway, and whatever I get back is okay. I love the guy in Youngstown very much. I try to help him. He hung himself. Ain't that a bitch? Literally hung himself. Couldn't make it. Couldn't make it. I loved him. In return, he killed himself. That hurt. I think about, you know, I was sober about a year and a half and in closing. I took my grandmother, and she, my grandmother's quite a gal. She's a little Russian, about this big. And uh, she had a son that died of old age from alcoholism at the ripe age of 30. That's as old as he got. <laughs> my uncle died, drank himself to death at the age of 30. So she knew a little bit about alcoholism. And one of the speakers, by the way, that's on a program, uh, was over in Youngstown leading, and by chance I took her over to this banquet. And she went over there as a guest of mine, and I figured, well, I'll take her there, and I'll show off her to all my good friends in AA without any embarrassment whatsoever. At the conclusion of this here anniversary dinner, the chairman said that there was a vase at each table with a rose in it. And the person with the most sobriety would take that momentum home as a momentum from the sir anniversary and my grandmother reached out there and grabbed that damn vase <laughs> I said oh my god that dumb hunky really embarrassed me how can I ever you know come back I didn't remember tell me all day I don't know what was going on I was completely embarrassed I said oh I looked at her and not only did I look at her, but everyone else at the table. These there was people there were seventeen. They were arguing who was gonna get the vase. She already snatched it up, you know. <laughs> Let me tell you the message that woman gave me and then people at that table, and this is my closing remarks to you. She said, you know, she's I I drink maybe sixty five years I drink. And not one time I ever get drunk. What makes you so special? Then she went on and she carried this message. She says, God made you not to be a drunken bum, but to be beautiful like you are. Thank you.
Thank you, Bill, for sharing yourself with us. As I had promised you, we do have a few minutes. If anybody does have any questions, our panel is amenable to give answers if, if they're available. Yes, sir. Wants a copy of your program, Clarence? Sure. Thank you. Yes, sir. would like to develop a program both above and below him, but especially above him, we would like to know how to attack that problem. That sounds like Jack Guest's baby. You're probably not going to like my answer. Uh, I would say depending on what area of the country you come from or what state, there are occupational program consultants available to all of you. Anybody that's interested in starting a program in their company I would certainly want to do it with some expertise. So I would take an occupational program consultant with me or an occupational program consultant from one of NCA's offices. The National Council on Alcoholism, local councils have occupational program people that are experts in the field. They would want to study the company and look at points of entry into that company because it takes a lot of strategy in order to reach the top and not get pushed back. I wish I could be more positive, but I'm sorry. I'd like to emphasize that's the way Bethlehem started their program in 1963 and 64. We retained the National Council on Alcoholism to develop a program for us. And uh, we then went ahead and wrote one and got it approved by top management. But it was with their cooperation and guidance. And they do have an excellent labor management committee that is quite active now and is uh, well aware of it. And it... it uh, certainly worth your while to contact the National Council on Alcoholism in New York and, and get some guidance from them. And I think if you just go directly to them, they would set you on the right path. Yes, sir. What part of many do labor unions uh, play in your program? They participate uh, by uh, sitting with us. I had said that they participate by sitting with us on our program. Uh, I perhaps should add that we are not a labor-intensive industry, and we have a relatively small proportion of our total workforce who are uh, unionized. We have several unions at our company. And fortunately, we agree. We agree that our program is not a management program, and it's not a labor program. It's a people program. And therefore, we have the best of cooperation from our labor people, and I think that's one of the reasons that the program works. You have any full-time counselors on your staff? I have two assistant managers, and they wouldn't mind me blowing their anonymity. They're both members of AA. How does management get to the... 
16% of the family members of the drinking problem were then helped to be the chief of the employee. Are they uh, approached, identified, motivated? 16, the 16% that I identified that were family members are family members with problems. There are normally self-referrals in that the employee comes to us regarding a problem that he or she has at home. Unfortunately, we don't have much motivation there. There's not much carrot and stick. And probably the recovery rate for family members is considerably lower than it is for employees. The question is, would I touch on the insurance aspects? Uh, Mr. Shepard may want to comment on this too. When we first started our program, it excluded alcoholism. And our carrier happens to be Pacific Mutual. And Pacific Mutual said, of course we'll cover alcoholism, and it'll cost you X number of dollars. And we said, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're not going to pay X number of dollars. And they said, oh, yes, because all those alcoholics are going to flock to hospitals, and your premium rate's got to go up, and it has to be reflected there. So we simply said, we'll shop. And they said, oh, wait a minute, uh, we think... We think we might be able to handle it. Our premium is about 23 million bucks a year, and you bet your boots they handled it. But there are companies that you don't even have to negotiate with, they handle it. Employers Insurance of Wausau, Kemper, I understand there's some others in the East that handle it. No, no increased cost, no increased premium rate. Did you want to comment on that? In the case of Gulf Canada, because in Canada we have Universal Medicare, uh, it is included among the treatment that is afforded under the, and really is, uh, there is a, in our case of our company, all companies are not the same. Our company pays half, the employee pays half. And it's a very small premium for the service you get. It's a, it varies from province to province, but it might be $30, $40 a year, that type of thing. Yes. No, it's a, it, I can answer that one. It is not a referral agent, uh, not a treatment agency. It is just a helping you to set up a program if you want one in industry, and it's primarily an educational organization. Marty Mann founded it in 1945. Yes. say this here on that, you know, first of all, I don't believe that AA should be in any corporation inside the plant. I think there's a tradition called the Tenth Tradition. We have no opinions on outside issues. If leave AA like it was, or it is. Keep it where the hell it belongs at. We're a helping organization. We're more than glad to associate. This is my opinion. And also, I'm also in the same field, by the way, that these gentlemen are in. I have six million people. That we have programs for. I'm talking about families and all, and the steelworkers union throughout North America. 
We keep the A out. We use the A inside the community. We refer out to the community. We do not bring AA inside the plant. What we've done this year, you, you immediately approach the anonymity of the individual. You know, there he goes in one of the meetings, and the individual is getting forced into it. If you're talking about inside AA, no. Go out to the community. There are inner groups. Contact them. Contact the groups outside and ask them for their support. But I would not bring AA inside the corporation itself. That's my personal opinion. I don't do that. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm talking to people in the follow-up. Is this done on their own time after shift? Or is this done on their shift time? On company time. <laughs> You contact them for a period of six months or a year or whatever. What is your piece of contact? Well, we use six months, but I'll follow them forever if I don't think they're making much progress. Thank you. Yes. Uh, my company is in the pre-planning phase. Since it's pre-pure, perhaps I won't identify it. But it's a broadcast network. We have, as in most entertainment media, widely dispersed employment through four or five people in the field dispersed. And I think it's a gradual, never-ending uh, feeling. Uh, as Jack put it, you have to get credi uh, credibility. And you have to ensure that the employee uh, gets rid of this feeling of being threatened. And this is not a quick thing. It, uh, it's something you certainly have to have front and center in your thinking and just keep working away at it. We do it through, uh, as I indicated, through our house organ, the which goes to every home right across the country, and you could perhaps do the same thing. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'd like to address this to Bill Jewish. Uh, in the field of construction, this is one area that has really been neglected as far as I'm especially in the union itself. Stealing, uh, asbestos, electrical, <coughs> and everything else. I mean, this is one area that really hasn't been touched on. And there's a hell of a lot of guys that, you know, fall out of the wayside. That's some of the best mechanics. And these are the people that are really, you know, we're leaders. And what can be done, maybe in the next five years, maybe something can be done to get to these locals. I mean, to the big unions itself. I mean, you being in the steel workers, we work with steel workers on the outside. If you're in a fabrication shop, things like that, you've got them where you want them. But these cats that are out around on these big jobs, traveling there for a year, and then they're gone somewhere else, 
All right, the question and the answer, or the question is, what do you do with the trades, the crafts and so forth? How do you, I think that's what it is, right. See, the industrial unions, where we're talking about the Hughes situation, or where we're at, uh, basic steel or mines or whatever it may be, we have a captured audience. And we have the employee at all times at our disposal, where we can motivate them through constructive coercion, as Jack was talking about. What is being done now in the crafts? Some areas, the crafts have developed programs. What is being done now at the level of the AFL-CIO in Washington, D.C., I think would interest you. They have now got behind the program 100%. In fact, George Meany now is involved with the National Council, like many of the presidents of other AFL-CIO unions. Through the community services of the AFL-CIO, they are putting out educational programs and developing it. Now, I'm not saying that that will attract each and every unit, as Ernie knows, and even the steelworkers. I could have five plants that have programs, and the other one won't even talk about it, because the union don't want it. But they are developing programs now at the, at the national level with the NCA. They're also developing programs through the NAAAP and ADPA. They're doing all that now at the present time, which I've... I have been honored to serve on some of those boards in the past. Uh, I think that they are in the right direction. Now, I understand that the AFL-CIO, by the way, just got a $3.5 million grant, so they should be doing something. I'd like to add to that that George Meany has assigned a, a full-time person by the name of Chuck Johnson to the NCA staff to start working with the crafts and, and, uh, and helping them get programs organized. Yes, sir. Hmm. Uh, I went to my house, built and got a bill of the I'm a member of a local, very large organization, Teamsters. Now, if you know what they have in the Southern California area, we're at the bottom of the class of 1960 for the National Association for the next year. But is there anything that either one of you would have to know, maybe when the army comes out this way with industry? Probably would contact Jim Davidson down at the, at the Los Angeles National uh, Council. He's uh, the executive director of the uh, Los Angeles uh, Council on Alcoholism, of the, which is a division of the National Council on Alcoholism. I think that's who you'd call. Wait a okay, Jack has a comment also. Uh, I, I would like to respond to that. Are you, are you talking about the negotiating table? No. I am a member of the union. Okay. I went to the people in my area where members are opposite the local, and I said, hey, we got a problem. You know, we're not doing anything to these people. So I went the first time, I got no response. I went the second time, and they, they listened to me. So we are going to try to process. You took it, like you said, you have a agreement within the union. You're managing, right? We, we don't, incidentally. Our agreement was made. Our agreement, and I happen to agree with this and endorse it wholeheartedly, our agreement was over the conference table, not the negotiating table. It is not a part of our labor contract, and I would hope that it never would become a part of our labor contract. Only if management wouldn't cooperate. Then I think it's a, a place to negotiate it. But if management cooperates and is willing to do it over the conference table, that's the appropriate place to have it. I agree with that. You don't have anything like no, I would contact Jim Davidson or Weldon Butterworth at the Alcoholism Council of Greater Los Angeles. They're familiar with all of the union programs that there are in that area, and they would know if the Teamsters are involved in any. May I, may I also add to that, 
I would suggest that you write your international because I know Fitz is on top of that. I sat in board meetings with him, Fitzsimmons, and I know that in other areas they are involved in alcoholism programs, and I would suggest that you write there and find out why it happened where you're at. Okay, well, I understand that. I hear you saying that. That's neat. But, but I, would write to your inter- I would write to your international and ask them. Do you want to take it How much is enough? The question was, when a person goes into treatment in an industrial program, how much is enough? I'm not altogether sure I understand the question, but let me try. Uh, I would say that if the individual accepts, we're talking about alcoholism now, if the individual accepts his alcoholism and is participating actively in a program aimed at his own rehabilitation, and if his performance is returned to an acceptable level, that's where it's at. What is your... Okay, so, so he uh, slips. Yeah. How many slips do you get? Oh, how many slips do you get? <laughs> You all knew that had to come up, didn't you? <laughs> and, I, and I don't have an answer for you other than every case is individual. Every case is individual and has to be. You have to consider all kinds of things. You have to consider the job the person's doing, length of service, you, just a whole number of variables. The thing that you want to be sure of is that you're consistent and that you're fair. And if you're consistent and fair, it shows up by no charges and no grievances. So apparently at Hughes, at least, we're doing something right because we haven't had any charges or any grievances. So we have been, I feel, consistent and fair. Yes, sir. I'd like to ask Mr. Shepard, the program, the program, the stems from the boardroom down to how do you is whether our program extends from the boardroom down and how do we demonstrate it? Um, that's a lot better question than the answer he's going to get. Uh, our program is known from the boardroom down. Um, as far as I know, we, we happen to have 12 members of our board, only two inside the company. We haven't had to apply it to any of those in the 15 years I've been on our board. Um, but that's not to say we won't. Uh, this is a classless illness, just like every other illness, and it doesn't matter what your job is, you're still susceptible to diabetes or alcoholism or anything else. This concludes the questions and answers. End of program.